what I wanted to show was that these characters, from an outside point of view, they might all be pegged as working class, but they're actually very complex in their um, their family histories, their backgrounds, their attitudes to, to money, to the work that they do. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. Today we're chatting to the brilliant Jen Ashworth about her new novel, Ghosted. Jen is the author of four other novels, A Kind of Intimacy, which won a Betty Trask Award, Cold Light, The Friday Gospels and Fell. In 2011, she was featured on BBC Two's The Culture Show as one of the 12 best new British novelists and in 2018 was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She has also written a memoir, Notes Made While Falling, and she lives in Lancaster with her family. Hello, Jen Ashworth. Welcome to Tender Buttons. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So I'm going to read a little bit of the book to you. Uh, this is from fairly late on in the book. And I guess to avoid spoilers, I'm not going to say too much other than um, this is Laurie. The book is narrated by Laurie um, she's in her mid to late 30s. She lives in a high-rise flat in a town that bears suspicious resemblance to Lancaster and um, her husband has gone missing. Let her do nothing, I murmured to myself, like some kind of blessing. Let her do whatever she feels like. Let her life be little and of no consequence. Let her drift. Let her fester on her settee, like I do. Let her linger anonymously, making little impact on the people she comes into contact with. Let her wait and watch and do nothing spectacular at all. Let her be forgotten by history. I wished for all those things because I knew that even if she did live her life as inadequately as that, it would be priceless to me. I wanted her to have that feeling of being loved without having to make any effort at all. Thanks so much for that, it's really beautiful. And I think we'll touch on lots of the things that are brought up by the passage like throughout the interview, but I wondered if, to start with, you could give a little bit of a background to Ghosted, like something of the premise and like where the idea kind of came from. I, I guess I am a, I'm a lover of crime fiction, of crime drama. I, I really like thrillers. And as, you, as your listeners will know, quite a lot, these stories um, are given narrative drive by someone going missing. And I've always been really intrigued by that. I read uh, Andrew Hagen's book, The Missing, years and years ago and have read it many times since. And it's the, the mystery that appeals to me. And what I'd noticed in being a kind of avid consumer of the, the genre is that very often it is uh, a child, a young woman, a teenage girl, or, or a woman goes missing, a female character who goes missing. And what I realised is that in real life, it's more often men who go missing. 
for various reasons and more often than not the men come back and I became really really interested in what was going on behind that and also I guess I was just really curious in the bits of the story the undramatic bits of the story that we don't get on the kind of crime drama that's on the tv um, and thrillers in certain types of crime novels which is what is it like to wait and not know and what is it like to um, to not know why, to not know where. What is it like to, to hope for a person to come back but to be completely powerless? And that was quite a challenge in terms of writing a novel because all of the stuff that makes drama, the searching, the finding, the, the police procedural, I knew that that's not what this book was going to be about. I knew that if, uh, you know, through my research, if a man who is kind of physically healthy decides that he wants to go missing and there's no particular concern that he is going to harm himself or someone else that the police are not going to do the kind of you know fingertip search that you sometimes see um on the television so it was figuring out where the drama was where the story was and i decided for ghosted the story would have to be in the why what was it about this man's life that would make him want to disappear and to give an extra challenge I decided to narrate it from the point of view of his wife Laurie who begins the novel by insisting that everything in their marriage is absolutely fine there's no problem at all because there is stuff going on in their lives and in their relationship that she just can't bear to look at and so a lot of the work on the novel was trying to allude to these other genres but would deal with this story in quite a different way while keeping it really located in the relationship yeah um i mean that was something that i was really interested in the kind of unconventional plot structure because it's almost like you begin with the climax in a way um and i know that in your memoir um notes made while falling you write a lot about um like plot and trying to find the right structure for things and how sometimes some forms are inadequate um so yeah were you thinking a lot about plot structure when you were writing and like where I guess because in some ways you're writing the untold side of the story like how did you know where to open so I wrote the first few pages of this book while I was teaching uh, an Arvon I was at Totley Barton and it was during the time that my agent was sending notes made while falling out and around publishers. And it was it was quite a difficult book to find the right home for. It's quite experimental. Um, it's sort of a memoir, although you don't find everything out about me. It's sort of a book of essays about reading and writing. Um, I don't think it would quite pass muster as... Um, serious literary criticism so it's a bit of a patchwork beast and it's a bit of a patchwork beast on purpose because lots of those structures of memoir of argument of criticism and yes absolutely of plot kind of fell flat and didn't hold what I wanted to say and I was in the aftermath of writing that book and my agent and some of the people who had read it had said well you've you've written this you know this quite long work about why a novel wasn't doing it for you uh, are you ever going to write another novel this is quite a bold thing for a novelist to say and I said oh I don't know I, I don't I don't really have any urges any designs to to write a novel at all and during this time when I was um 
at Totley Bar and I had a, a conversation with um, one of the guest tutors who was there and I can't really remember what we talked about. I remember us sitting on a bench. I remember talking to her about this and I remember feeling extremely understood and I went to bed and I wrote the first few pages of Ghosted and, and in this first few pages of Ghosted, not Laurie is narrating very directly to the reader and she's saying, this is what happened the last time I saw my husband. We had this really minor argument. Um, I, then he went missing. I waited a long time before I reported him, reported this to the police. I didn't tell the police that I was angry at him, but I'm telling you now. And, and I had really no idea what was going to happen next. I'd already done a lot of the reading around missing people because I was intrigued by it, but I didn't have any sense I was researching a novel. That material was just kind of there in my head, ready to draw on when I began Ghosted. And I, I guess that beginning suggested the rest of the book to me. It suggested a narrator that was going to try really hard to tell the truth, but was... Um, unable to and I didn't know why at that point and it suggested a marriage that had once been loving and close if um, if not a little eccentric a little weird as, as maybe most intimate relationships are and wasn't anymore and it, it suggested her urgency not only to find her husband but to understand what had happened and Laurie kind of has a choice. I don't think it's it's explicit, but for me it was clear as I was writing it that she had a choice to to suffer or to um to remember and to narrate. And so that tension was what I kept going back to instead of thinking about plot, instead of thinking what happens next, what does she do next, and um, what clues am I gonna plant. Instead, I just thought for every scene. What is Laurie's choice here? Where is she going to tell the truth and where is she going to hold back? And how is her holding back going to cause her more suffering? And how am I going to dramatise that? Um, and I guess by using this word suffering, I'm making it sound um, kind of a really, a really miserable book. And it, and it is a book that, that tackles, um, you know, it tackles the, the, the strongest possible type of loss. It, it tackles... Um, I think alcoholism it, it tackles um illness and 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 grief and rage and a marriage going disastrously wrong and I also wanted it to be quite funny um and that was there in that beginning few pages I wrote that few pages and kept rereading them and thinking what kind of novel is this and and even in those opening few pages there is um Laurie is describing the last time that she had sex with her husband and it is lacklustre to say the least um, and she's pretending that he's been snoring all night even though he hasn't because she wants to kind of score a point against him in a game that he doesn't know he's playing so all the 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 narrative um the puzzles and the the traction the energy of the book and the mood and the different tones of the book were there in that first few pages that I wrote in Totley Barton and where those first few pages came from I have no idea they just they just fell off me like a like an apple off a tree once I'd been given a good shake by the person who I spoke well, that, to. That's really interesting because something we were actually going to ask you was in notes you wrote so much about like um, kind of the failures of fiction or feeling like fiction wasn't holding you. And then 
and and the inability of fiction to like hold trauma whereas now you have written a novel which is about lots of different kinds of trauma yes <laughs> so it's like something changed right in in your perspective something did change I didn't expect it to my agent had said to me Jenny you're gonna write um another novel and I said oh no I don't think so and then I think about maybe I wrote the first draft of Ghosted in nine weeks and I think it was maybe four or five months later I I rang him and I said you know I said I wasn't going to do novels anymore well sorry I've got a novel um I'm going to tidy it up a bit and then send it and so something did change and it was something that changed suddenly and unexpectedly one of my friends said to me and I do think there is wisdom in this that all the books are, are, are kind of in you like um like sweets in a Pez machine and they've got to come out in that order and I kept trying to write a a, a fiction based on an experience I'd had of of quite severe postnatal mental illness and I couldn't write that novel I just couldn't and so instead I wrote Notes Made While Falling and once that sweetie was and sweetie is exactly the wrong word for that book (laughs) but once, once that sweetie was out of the Pez machine then Ghosted was ready and and I think that might be one of the things that changed that the thing that I just had to say I found a way to say it and it couldn't be said as a novel but it was said in this other way and that freed me and I think maybe the other thing that changed was that my relationship to my writing process became very very different previously to writing notes I was um I was very deliberate, I was very disciplined, I worked really, really hard, I was very um very ambitious for the work, um loads and loads of drafts, uh sought a lot of feedback and I don't think those are bad things to do, but for me they were quite often about trying to control the material. And with ghosted, what it felt like you know I was still using technique I was still reading I was still editing I was still um you know asking other writers to take a look at a chapter now and again and give me feedback I was still doing that kind of thing but I I don't think I was trying to control the book what it felt like when I was sitting typing was that I was listening um rather than talking and I I know that sounds odd but that is just how it was it's I guess that's partly why there are some psychics who also listen to things beyond their knowledge or pretend to in this book. I was thinking as well then about process of writing notes and that kind of hybrid memoir, whatever we want to call it. How, In what ways that facilitated your inhabiting Laurie's character? And like you say, there's like we're, it touched on, it touches on lots of similar themes, particularly about all these multi-layered aspects of trauma. But there is like this darkly comic edge that you mentioned and so, like, the feel of it is very different. So I wonder, yeah, like, what... Did did notes facilitate Laurie, basically, for you? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Some of Laurie's feelings I have experienced. Um, I have not shared all of her kind of lived experiences, is, is what I'll say. Um, so this book is very definitely fiction, but there is an emotional resonance to it that comes from some of my experiences of um of grief of powerlessness of rage of um being so unhappy that you 
make yourself so consistently unlikable that the people who would want to help you um, stay out of your way. I know about those things and I think I didn't know about them enough or I didn't know about them with enough compassion until I finished writing notes. Um, you know, I, I am glad that I know I wrote notes. I'm not disowning it. I think it's an important um, part of my work. It's also a book that is perhaps stands alone, not only for it being non-fiction, but also because it doesn't have that darkly comic strand that runs through most of my other work. I don't know if I lost my sense of humour or my humour did not come with me um, into the place I was in when I was writing notes. But for me, the humour was about um, a kind of acceptance and a kind of compassion. It's not that something can be funny or tragic. It can almost always be both. Um, and, and that came back to me in, in Ghosted in a, in a way that, I don't know, I, people are surprised when I say this, but I just really, really enjoyed writing it. That was something that I really liked about Laurie like in lots of ways she's an unreliable narrator right she tells us one thing then we figure out that she's lying and I feel like when you're reading it you sort of move in and out of liking her at certain points and I was th I was thinking about especially like with writing female characters and the idea of like your protagonist needing to be likable and I also liked how you know not to give anything away but like she doesn't she doesn't have a big, like, transformation in the cliched way that you often see in films. Or And I was wondering, yeah, were you thinking about that while you were writing? Yeah, the, the transformation thing was really, really important and it was something um, that I was very determined to address in this book and that I'd also addressed in notes made while fallen in that, you know, when someone writes a memoir about illness, quite often they're supposed to write it when they're better and they're supposed to look back from this place of enlightenment and yoga and kale smoothies and say, gosh, that was bad, but look who I am today and I have gained some wisdom. I, I just didn't have that. I didn't. And I'm not sure that putting people who have suffered or struggled under the pressure to tell that particular genre of story helps. Um, I don't think it helps and I don't think, um, I think that narrowing in the stories that, that people are allowed to tell, specifically women are about allowed to tell about their suffering is a, is a healthy thing for the woman or for our literary culture, um, perhaps more importantly to, to your listeners. And certainly for Laurie, I, I definitely wanted her to struggle to articulate and to block herself at every turn and to self-tabotage and I wanted her to grow and I wanted her to be able by the end of the book to acknowledge other people's suffering and not just her own and it's not that her sadness and her rage and her ability to self-sabotage and her utter persistent selfishness um, evaporates it's that she is able to acknowledge them and she's also able to see that other people are real and they suffer and they have that stuff going on as well. And so quite often um, in the kind of stories that I was writing against, if a woman makes this self-discovery, she will, for example, lose weight or get a haircut or wear contact lenses. There will be this kind of outer Cinderella type transformation. And Laurie begins the novel um, in slightly 
grubby jeans, glasses, um, and has forgot to apply her deodorant that morning, and ends the novel in precisely that way. She, um, I guess it goes back to that that um, quotation, that short quotation that I read at the beginning of the podcast. She doesn't need to make any particular effort to be loved, I hope, by the reader. Um, she doesn't need to be good, she doesn't need to be beautiful, she just needed to be fully there, which I think she is by the end. I know we keep going back to notes, but they are actually really interesting, like, counterpoints. They, yeah, they do, they talk to and, each and other. And in that, it's, like, quite... Like, there's so much that you write about the resistance of closure or how, like, a closure of a narrative, like, often involves some sort of denial. Like, I think there's a point in notes where you say where you speak about a recovery narrative involving denial. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, like, I guess for the types of illnesses and experiences that I am interested in um, personally and as a writer, there isn't a point where you go, oh, I'm better now. Um, There's just a, you know, it's not like, you know, they take the plaster cast off and you're as good as new. It's more that, I've heard people say this about grief as well, it's not that the grief goes away, you don't get over it, it doesn't shrink. It's just that who you are and your life enlarges around it and you take it with you. And that is maybe quite anti-novelistic. It's it's anti that kind of conclusion of, you know, here is my epiphany, here is my insight, and now I am better, that abrupt change. So it's not that change doesn't happen, it's just that it's a... The grief is still there, the, the rage, the selfishness, the loss, um, but things are added to it as we go through the novel. And and that's what I, I, I guess I experienced personally um, and tried to elaborate on in notes and also what I then tried to fictionalise in Ghosted. And yeah, the books, the books do talk to each other. I, I don't think I could have written Ghosted um, in the way that I did and, and, and Laurie's kind of central experience is not mine and I don't think that I would have gone into such delicate um, important territory unless I had done the the years of reading and thinking about how we narrate pain and how we um, how we listen to pain how we listen to trauma what these kind of works demand from a reader and how and and how difficult it is that the type of stories that we maybe are interested in listening to are, you know white women's crying um and and yeah I'm a white woman I'm privileged in very many ways and working with that problem in notes again helped me to deal with it I hope um with a bit of I don't know a bit of delicacy in Ghosted. Do you feel like writing the fiction so you're exploring similar themes, but one of them is non-fiction, one of them is fiction. Did writing the fiction afford you like different kinds of freedoms, maybe, to explore things? Or did the memoir, or the hybrid memoir, kind of afford... You know, I'm interested in, like, sometimes something feels more true and real if it's true, and sometimes it feels more true and real if it's fictional. And I'm just wondering if you, like, felt that power play... I guess I felt so free to make things up and ghosted, you know, um, that that Lori lives in a place that I have never lived in. You know, the fact that she lives in a flat 
is is quite structurally important to the book in terms of you know her interactions with her neighbors the way that she can hear people all around her um and i i just made all of that up and i felt so free and so happy doing it to to joyfully invent um i have worked as a university cleaner but years and years and years ago and now i'm an academic um on campus so i uh, i interact with um, university campuses really really differently and it was brilliant to be able to just imagine myself into her skin and have her inhabit an environment that I did know well the university campus but but you know have a really different experience it was it was joyful to be able to do that and I I guess I hope that notes and ghost deed both contain emotional truth I hope that they do um I I kind of think you can say something that's emotionally true and also make loads and loads of it up and and the I think why I wrote ghosted so joyfully was that I I didn't I think in order to write notes I had to think to myself I'm I'm just not going to do this anymore I'm gonna stop and that sort of gave me a freedom to explode into ghosted and I, I'm not sure that I totally understand it yet but yeah, you know, you've commented on the books talking to each other in these, um, I think, quite interesting ways, and they do. One of the things I really enjoyed about doing with Ghosted was the um, subplots. I don't, I don't think you really get subplot as much in memoir. And there were lots of different strands to Notes Made While Falling and lots of different techniques. So some parts of it are fairly straight memoir, some of it we might call autofiction. There's literary criticism, cultural criticism, it does it does interesting things with how you're supposed to turn the pages and the layout. You know, there are other things that that book did that Ghosted can't do. But what I loved about Ghosted was creating and being really interested in characters that were not only not me, but weren't Laurie either. Um, so for much of the book, I was loads more interested than Ole- in Olena than Laurie manages to be. She's so wrapped in her own suffering that she seems to miss really quite important things about the people around her um, that she's loved, that she's really, really loved by um, Olena and that olena has got her own problems. And I loved working with that. Um, I really, really liked writing the friendship that Laurie has with, with Eddie. Um, I wanted uh, a sense that they were... I wanted to bring a really kind of funny, flirty, close, completely platonic relationship into the book and to to have a character Eddie who was um maybe not entirely a gentleman at all times but also an extremely good patient friend to to Laurie and so I enjoyed pushing away from um anything to do with my own experience and, and bringing all these other characters in and pushing away from Laurie's experience and perspective I I think that most of these characters could have held a novel. I think Elena could have been the star of a novel. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe I'll go back to her one day. Yeah, I loved Elena's character. And I think like that, you what you've just said about like Laurie missing certain things that us as the readers or like you as the writer, whatever, like pick up on uh, from the people around them. That like really certainly articulated like lots of intersections around like class and like migration. So I thought like there was a really striking moment. I think like they've been, Laurie and Mark in a flashback have been to a family meal at Laurie's house. And um, there's this kind of like 
just real subtle nod towards like the different class positions to Mark and Laurie. So like Mark's kind of en- envious of the fact that like Laurie chose to be a cleaner in a way that Mark didn't get to choose to be a security guard. And so there's this like, there's both these intersections like gender going on between them, but at the same time, like a lot around choice and class. And then also then onto Elena, how that happens in the sense that Laurie's attitude of her is like, oh, it's just like the carer who's from Eastern Europe who is here to serve my family and all these like kind of like blind spots that she gets. And like you say, as we get a more enriched version of Elena, how much she realises she's been missing from like just literally everything around her. And I, I want you to be quite sympathetic about that as well. The, the way that, you know, the way Laurie speaks to Elena is, is pretty disgraceful. The suspicions, the prejudices she has about her is pretty disgraceful. And Elena relentlessly loves Laurie. Um, and yet we learn that Elena as maybe trying to outrun something in her past, maybe trying to atone for something that she's feeling bad about. So that love in itself is quite motivated and quite complicated. And yeah, Elena is in the UK not to be a carer, but she's a student, um, which which um, Laurie completely ignores and avoids. And yet people do this to her when she's at work. They um, She takes the job as a cleaner because she, um, at the university rather than the hospital because she thinks that she's going to get a library card for the university. So it's really complex. And um, Mike thinks, as you say, that that... Laurie's kind of just playing at it that, that, you know, she could have gone to uni, she should have gone to uni, her dad's an accountant, he owns a house, she's not quite in the same class position as he is. And, yeah, she sort of is playing it and she is as helpless in this weird kind of conflict that she's got going on, this years-long conflict that she's got going on with her dad as as maybe Mike is um, in, in his... You know, and I don't, I don't think that Ghosted provides any answers around around immigration around work around class around um the kind of labor that these characters do but i didn't want to provide answers what i wanted to show was that these characters from an outside point of view they might all be pegged as working class but they're actually very complex in their um their family histories their backgrounds their attitudes to to money to the work that they do and that you know it's 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 trickier than that. It so much more accurately reflects the way we make meaning in our actual lives, as in it's messy. It's not like there's this mass... Like, you, and then I suppose your nods towards crime fiction, it's a really interesting departure from like crime fiction of old where you've got like the master detective, male, white, middle class, or like Sherlock Holmes or something like that. Um, but then it's like really interesting there that like the meaning that you make is like through scraps and like through the way in which different reflections happen from different characters and their relationships. Yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things I love about crime fiction as a reader, um, and I find it such a comforting genre, and I don't mean to do it down at all, and crime fiction is a massive genre as well. So, you know, we can think about, um, I don't know, Crime and Punishment and Macbeth, and we can think about, you know, I don't know, Broadchurch. Um, So I, I don't mean anything I say to be taken as critical of a genre that I love. But what is comforting about this genre is the way that sometimes it not only dispenses the story, the truth that solves the problem, but it also um, indicates that, that that is possible, that the truth is available to be known and that the problem can be solved. And I both um, 
and helplessly addicted to that. Um, it is one of the things I share with Laurie. She loves uh, exploitative, slightly dubious true crime podcast, as do I. Um, so it's one of the things I share with my character and I'm also very critically suspicious of it. And I wanted to run both of those at the same time in this novel. I wanted to have that big crime fiction-y type problem you know where is the missing man and and there are various hints you know the police sometimes suspect that Laurie might have done away with him in some way we wonder if he has um he has ended his life we we wonder if he's um been stealing there's all kinds of possible crime fiction stories going on there and I wanted to preserve the fact that we don't know, and even when we do know, it's never as simple as that. It's always, always much more complicated. So I kind of wanted to do both, and without wanting to give too much away, I also wanted to echo and reflect that in Laurie's story. Um, in I wanted to echo and reflect that in Olena's story as well, that she has also been involved in um, true crime podcasts, related activity in her previous life and that that how she appears and the way that she loves and the way that she um exists the way that she's trying to build herself a new life is you know she's not this saintly um servile helper that there's quite a lot going on that that Laurie just can't notice right now yeah something I really liked about your portrayal of all of these different characters maybe within one class bracket but also having really different experiences I was wondering like like as a northern writer do you sometimes feel like there is a pressure to talk about class in a particular way like in some ways it seemed to me like a a refute of that almost like it's actually really complex and I I feel like sometimes there's a pressure (laughs) that you have to fulfill this kind of stereotype yeah yeah I am I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't think that anything I'm doing with class in Ghosted is news to anyone that's working class. I don't think it is. I don't think that I need to educate anyone about how complicated and multifaceted a class identity is and how a class identity can both evolve and change and grow over a lifetime and that your roots are your roots and you don't forget where you came from and that there's something about a home culture that doesn't leave you no matter where you end up. And I wanted, um, yeah, I wanted to reflect that lived reality, which is my lived reality. And I think it is also the lived reality of most working class people. Um, that, that, you know, it's not news that working class people go to university, that they leave home, that they come back, that they travel, that they go and ride on trains in Europe, that they have library tickets and read books. And I, you know, I see you smiling when I'm saying this to you because I know it's not news to you either. Um, I wonder if there are certain corners of um, UK literary culture that it is news to. Um, I, don't, I don't feel a particular pressure from them or responsibility to them either. <laughs> I just think of what you're saying about like the true crime podcast phenomenon. A lot in Laurie's mental health around paranoia, part and parcel of like whatever she's suffering with her mental health, as well as interesting like allusions with Mark's character about his obsession of conspiracy theories. Yes. Which I really enjoyed that parallel going on and they like obsessed with a, a girl who's gone missing. Like mm. that's kind of, they're almost getting a kick out of that. Yeah. Like narrative that's going on in the background of their relationship. 
And it made me think about the increase in fascination in conspiracy theories, accelerated by the pandemic, for sure. And there's a kind of powerlessness to it, I think, from people who are wanting to believe that a truth can be exposed through these conspiracy. And that if we just reveal that one extra truth, the whole, you know, castle will come crumbling down of the, of the people who make people feel powerless. So I was wondering about conspiracy theories and paranoia and like power and how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so interesting. So I was writing Ghosted before our current, um, I don't know, the, or just imagine me waving my arms, all this. I was writing it before and I edited it during the lockdown. And so as I was originally writing it, I was thinking about QAnon. I was thinking about those kinds of um, conspiracy theories, those kinds of grand narratives. And what a variety of people... Um, kind of sign up for them or enjoy them or it's a hobby or it's a, a I don't know a lifestyle a life belief and um, what what is the appeal and the the double-edgedness of I guess what we might call a grand narrative um it can be so comforting to think yes you know this this paranoia is not paranoia there really is a big story that connects everything together that makes everything make sense there's a plan there are other people in charge that can be really really comforting especially when you are in grief in terror in crisis and i think that these kind of big beliefs crop up culturally when we're in crisis so now um, and you'll see kind of the rise of spiritualism, for example, you know, between the First and Second World War. It's not a new, it's not a new idea. This is the kind of, you know, the way the human psyche works. And also how terrifying it is. Um, and that it can be both of those at the same time. I do not think that people who are fully involved in kind of conspiracy theory culture are comforted. Um, but I do think that there's something to do with the idea of the the big grand narrative that that is comforting and it's kind of the way I was speaking about crime fiction that no matter how dark and how gritty it is no matter the appalling violence and the trauma that those types of stories contain if they somehow indicate that the badness can be pointed at and found isolated cleared up and taken away um it's it's kind of suspect and I think that's maybe what these kind of conspiracy theories that was the appeal to Mark the badness is out there and there is something to do with power and also to do with control and um, this is a married couple who have been absolutely helpless in the face of one of the worst possible disasters and both of them in their own ways are seeking a kind of control Mark's is through this um, relentless pessimism, which is a kind of retreat into safety, and, and, and Laurie's is through a, a denial. Um, I think it's really interesting thinking about um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, how in notes you're sort of looking for a form to hold you, and how you know people look for that as readers, you're looking for something to hold you in a book, and also as a writer that's sometimes what you're looking for as well. And how with this book, you've kind of drawn on the form or the trope of like the crime genre, but it also has elements of horror in it as well. And, and it's kind of the idea that like, which I think is quite unconventional. And it was something I really liked how you're sort of marrying the two genres. And I guess maybe there's something in there, different ways of controlling a story or different ways of 
again like looking for reassurance in the world and I was just wondering yeah was that something you were thinking of or why why did you want to draw on kind of horror elements and psychics and those kinds of things I guess I was I mean I'm maybe going to make it sound like I planned it and I was much more conscious of what was going on than I actually was you know I, I just it just kind of fell out of my head in one fell swoop but when I look back and I see what I did um, I notice how obsessed this book is with ways that we talk to people who are not there um, so this is Mark on his conspiracy theory websites. He's on forums. He's got a bit of a reputation as like the cool guy on forums. He's got fans. Um, he's speaking to people who are not there. He has um, these kind of, you know, not quite imaginary conversations with his father, but he has a, a, a relationship with a father that he has never met. He doesn't know and, and will never meet. Laurie spends quite a lot of time being hungover and dialing into Mark's voicemail and talking into his voicemail even though it's not recording anymore and the the idea of psychics and telephone psychics and seances they were just they were one more way of figuring out what it is people do when they try and speak to someone who's not there this idea of horror um the ghostliness the the haunted um it runs through all of that and i guess you know, I didn't sit down and go, oh, how can I address this idea and, and, you know, what tropes should I use? But I look back at it and I see how obsessed the book is with both presence and absence, what's there and what's not, and how closely that speaks to the nature of um, Laurie and Mark's loss, whether grieving something that is not there um, was there, was there in a complicated way. And I am um, trying not to, to spoil... Um, and maybe another way of thinking about it is um, Laurie's dad, who is losing his memory, and he is both... Um, he's constantly talking about things that happened in the past. We don't really know if these things ever happened or didn't happen. You know, the, that past is both there and not there. And so there's something about presence and absence that found itself in the, um, the, the idea of the ghost that Laurie hears a baby crying, there are bumps in the night, there is a cold place in her house, those kind of tropes of that type of horror fiction, but was a way of getting an idea that I, I try and get at through lots of other ways as well. Or the book tried to get at it in lots of other ways. <laughs> We're wondering if you could talk about the 100 days of writing that you set up and what that is and why you set that up. Okay, yeah, um, so... I guess this is another one of those little links and bridges between notes and ghosted. Um, so while I was in the, I think I was in the middle of the King Lear essay in notes, um, which was a extremely kind of technically difficult and personally difficult essay to write. Um, and while I was working on that, um, I, someone close in my family died. And I took some time off and there were things that I needed to do and feelings that I needed to feel. And when I went back to the book, it was kind of gone. Um, it's like it's a living thing while you're working on it. And I'd been away from it too long and it was like going on holiday and your houseplant dying. And that's what happened. <laughs> it's 
probably a really a really bad comparison because it didn't feel like a holiday. It was bloody awful. But I was away. I neglected my living thing, and it it felt like it died, and completely spontaneously with no planning at all and this is in 2017 I decided I was going to write every day for 100 days and in order to keep me accountable I every day I was going to post a picture on Instagram and it felt quite important that I was not measuring word count I wasn't saying I'm going to write 500 words a day every day that I wasn't going to you know aim to finish my book although I secretly was um I wasn't going to say I'm going to write for 10 hours every day it wasn't a kind of boot camp thing what I was trying to do was give this project the kiss of life and my instinct was that if I kept going home to it and spending time with it that the houseplant would start to green up again and I I kind of posted this and, and it was completely spontaneous, no planning at all. Um, many of the hundred days, I thought it was a terrible, terrible idea. But what I didn't expect was that people started to join in as well. And many of those people approached it in the same way as I did. So they did not, um, they weren't, they weren't doing a kind of productivity thing. It wasn't a boot camp. It wasn't, um, you know, press ups in public. It was, it was very gentle, gently touching in with a project every day. So I, I kind of said, um, there was one of the pictures where it's like midnight and I've just been to a friend's wedding and I'm sitting on a bed in the sort of going out dress and I'm literally just running the spell checker. Like that's all I'm doing. I'm just touching in with the project on that day. And people were doing that with me. And I, noticed that once we got away from word counts and techniques and trying to sell or advertise your work on social media that people were just talking in really open really honest ways about what it felt like to write that was the first thing I noticed how how nourishing that was how beautiful it was and the second thing I noticed was that it it kind of didn't matter if someone was working on um, PhD, literary criticism, a journal, letters, if they were writing memoir, poems, it didn't matter if they were just beginning or if they had written other books, if they'd won prizes, if they were making money from their writing, if they were teaching writing, it didn't matter. What mattered was what it felt like to turn up every day. And it, it, was, it was kind of... Um, I, I guess I won't speak for anyone else who participated in it but for me it was kind of amazing to when I talked about the difference between writing notes and writing ghost deeds and I said that yeah you know one's fiction one's not but really it's the relationship with the words one of the things that made the difference in the relationship was doing 100 days of writing of turning up really gently and curiously with some other people so I'm doing it again. I, I I started, I did it in 2018 and wrote Ghosted. And I didn't do it in 2019. And I started in 2020. And I think day, I think it was maybe day 29 was the day the schools closed for the first lockdown. I have two kids at home and I was also teaching at home. And I gave myself the absolute gift of jacking in a hundred days of writing um which I forgave myself for even even as I did it um but circumstances are a little better now so I have begun again and I am on day 
um, 38 today, I think. Um, I was just going to say, I think that transparency about the writing process is something I really like because I think maybe there's this idea that like once you have written a book, then you're, you've mastered the skill. And that's it. You're a master now. Whereas maybe it's never like that, right? Every project is different. Every whatever point in your life you're in, like whatever your circumstances are, it's different. Is that something you found as you've written your books? Yeah, yeah. And I I guess that was one of the differences that Notes made that, you know, in my personal life, even though I was extremely ill, I put loads and loads and loads of effort into acting like I was okay and acting like I was um, a kind of, you know, reasonably successful novelist, competent teacher, decent human being. Um, and I was some of those things some of the time, and there was a lot else going on. And so both Notes Made While Falling and 100 Days of Writing was about... Um, it wasn't about kind of saying, oh, I'm an awful person, I'm sick, you know, look at my kind of sad, horrible pain. It was about saying... Let's look at everything. Let's look at the entirety of what is there. So some days I might say, this is amazing. I love writing. I've got such a good idea and I just want to sit all day. And the next day I'll say, this is so boring and I can't believe I decided to do this and I hate it. And and sometimes I think people are going to laugh at me and, and all that stuff. I'm just trying to bring all of what is real into the room. Um, and it, it kind of informs or is informed by my practice as a teacher that I, I began teaching, I guess, at, at, at the time when I was most sick. And it, I felt it was really important that I would stand up at the front of a lecture theatre and be good at stuff and be competent and be um, someone to look up to. And... I hope that I can offer my students um, stuff that's valuable to them, but I also want to be a real human being in that room. And that is a really big change that happened through notes and 100 days of writing. Absolutely. I, I see all these projects kind of really intermingled. That's a really nice place to finish. Thanks so much for coming on Tender Buttons, Jen Ashra. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs>